Well, good morning. Uh, good to see you all. My name is uh, Reed Kappel. I serve as the campus pastor here. It is a joy uh, to be with you this morning as we turn uh, to God's Word um, and to hear from Him. But, but before we do that, I want to just pray for our time uh, as we jump in. So let's take a moment uh, to pray. Father in heaven, Lord, hallowed be your name in our minds and in our hearts. Lord, I ask that in this time as we hear from your word that you would, by the power of your spirit, help us to see you for who you are. Lord Jesus, may we, may we understand and behold you as the, the wondrous mystery of the one who is fully God and fully man who came to live for us, to die for us, to redeem us, to defeat death and one day return to reign and rule. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us insight into your word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the name of Christ Jesus that we pray. Amen. Uh, well, I think a lot of you know this. If you do know me, uh, my wife, Megan, and I, we have, we have four kids. We have the joy of uh, being a parents to four wonderful children. Uh, we have three beautiful girls and one endlessly entertaining Edmund. Uh, he's our, our little boy. And uh, when we were pregnant with Edmund, um, we actually did one of those 3D ultrasounds where you go in. It's, it's kind of creepy, actually. But uh, we went in to find out if we were going to be flush with females uh, or if we were going to be adding a little houseboy to our sorority. And, and the day came, and we, we couldn't believe it. Like, we were actually adding a son to our family. And, and it was a momentous occasion, but, but we, we really couldn't believe it, and especially my daughter, Pearl, our youngest at the time, who just, I said, like, Pearl, you're going to have a little brother. And she said, nope, it's a girl. <laughs> and, and, like, she was convinced, like, no, we're having a girl. And so, so much so that we left the ultrasound place to go pick out an outfit at the store uh, that we would bring Edmund home in after, at the hospital. And Pearl only spent her time looking at dresses the entire time. She was convinced her little sibling was going to be a girl. And so, you fast forward three years, and Pearl is actually still holding this, to con this conviction, uh, evidenced by this photo taken last week. <laughs> that is... That is my son. And so it was bound to happen. So please, please pray for Edmund. Uh, oh, this is funny. Yeah. Anyway, I, I mean, th this is just one of the four stories of, of our children coming into this world. And, and as I was reflecting on that, like with every one of those stories, uh, there's fun memories, there's hilarious things, there's some more serious moments. But the common thread that runs through all of them is this feeling of anticipation of waiting for this child to arrive and to finally meet this child and to look them in the eyes and to know that they are here. It's this, uh, this idea of anticipation. And, and recently I've been feeling that, that feeling again. We're, we're not pregnant, just for the record, just so you know. Uh, but, but really as we've been journeying through Genesis, I, I found myself feeling in, in similar ways this idea of anticipation, of waiting, of longing for this child to be born. And it kind of caught me by surprise. If you've been journeying with us through Genesis, you know, this is the first time I've really preached through the book of Genesis. And going through so slowly, I've found myself feeling along with Abraham and Sarah as they've been waiting for this son to be born to them. And, and maybe you felt that same kind of ex expectation and anticipation along with me, but I've just been kind of surprised by that. But, but what's so fascinating is that in the amount of time it takes from, from when God declares to Abraham, you will have a descendant, to the time that Isaac is actually born, 214 verses take place in that time span. Only eight of those are devoted to the birth of Isaac. 
And so there's this expectation, this excitement, it comes, but very little airtime is given, biblically speaking, to the birth of Isaac. It's rather strange. And then on top of that, this moment comes, we're expecting great celebration, but as the, the Bible unfolds in this beautiful story, it leads to something unimaginable, a story where we are waiting for God to bring forth this promise, and then God asks Abram to do something rather ungodly. And we see that in our text this morning in Genesis 22, which, which I want to read for us this morning. And so I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we turn to Genesis 22 and come to a, a story that in some ways is probably familiar to some of us, but is no less shocking and hard to swallow as we jump in to our text in Genesis 22, verses 1 through 10. So hear the word of the Lord. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham... And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So if you, were, if you were hoping for an easier story to process and understand in light of last week's message on Sodom and Gomorrah, you are, you're going to be very disappointed because th this is a very hard story to grasp. In some ways, like I said, it's a familiar story if you've grown up in the church, but it is still a story that we have a hard time grasping how on earth can God, the holy righteous one, ask Abraham to do something that appears to be so ungodly and wicked? The, the story feels like it gives, it gives credence and credibility to the behavior and the actions of, of religious fanatics who execute great evil in the name of God. It, it seems like it's a story that, that kind of proves the point of the words by the famous physicist and atheist Steven Weinberg, uh, who famously penned these words. He says, with or without religion, good people can behave well and bad people can do evil. But for good people to do evil, that takes religion. And if I'm honest, that's what this kind of story feels like, that God is asking Abram in the name of religious obligation to do something that appears evil, unjust, and wicked. And so what I want to do, I, this is, again, it's another hard story, and we, we don't want to shy away from it. We want to enter into them. But how do we make sense of what God is asking Abraham to do? 
And so I want us to, to enter into the story and wrestle with it together, and, and hopefully we can come to a, a greater understanding of what God is doing in this c- completely implausible story. And so, so look with me at verse 2 in chapter 22. God says, he, he, he tells Abraham, he says, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Now, an important thing to note, and it may feel like a difference with little distinction, but, but God does not ask Abraham to murder his son, okay? There's a very big difference between murder and sacrifice. Some of you feel like it doesn't seem all that different. It's just a different word. But what God is asking Abraham to do is to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice, and, and again, that may actually not make the situation any better. In some ways, it's worse. It's like God is asking him to do this in the name of religious obligation and, so, and to do this in my name. Like, how do we make sense of this? That actually doesn't help the problem. You're digging a deeper grave for yourself here, Reed. So how do we make sense of this? And, and one thing, and we've said this throughout the Genesis series, when we come to these ancient texts, it's important that we don't just read our own cultural context back into the Bible. We have to understand the culture in which it took place and which these stories were written. And, and in the ancient Near East, it, w- it was a common understanding, uh, this was true among the ancient Near Eastern gods, but also of the God of Scripture, that, that your, the first fruits of your harvest that the first and best animal in your livestock and, and even the firstborn of your family was to be consecrated to God, that, that God was, was so holy and righteous and just and the creator of all things that he deserved your very best. And now in, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, you actually see practices of human sacrifice of the firstborn, which it looks like God's going down that road, road and just looks just like all the other gods that we write off as being capricious and childish and malevolent. But, but actually we see something very different. You see, the, the way in which God sets us up in, in Exodus 13, after God delivers God's people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, he, he summons them. So he saves them and rescues them, redeems them, not because of anything they've done, but because of God's love and grace towards them. But then he says, in light of what I have done for you, he says, give to me your first fruits, the first and best of your livestock, and consecrate your firstborn to me. Now, God is not demanding sacrifice in this story, but what he is saying is he's communicating, I am the creator of all things, and I deserve what I have created. Now, I say that, this doesn't solve the problem. I I say this, it it may help us at least understand why God is asking Abraham to give his firstborn to him. We can understand it, but it's still implausible. It still seems like something we can't grasp and fully believe. But one thing that we have to understand, there's a difference, like I said, between murder and sacrifice. And God is asking Abraham to give Isaac. If God would have asked Abraham to sacrifice Sarah, Abraham would have said, like, no way, Hosanna. Like, that that would have not been something he would have seen as a plausible request because there was no theological or cultural precedent for a husband to sacrifice his wife. At least in this culture, there was some understanding of the firstborn being given back to God to some degree. Now, like I said, this helps us understand the story, but it still makes it very implausible. We are still a ways off from seeing God coming out of this story as the good guy. How do we still make sense of what is going on here? Well, I think when we turn to Abraham and his response to God, we actually get a a better grasp of what's happening. 
Look with me at verse 5, which verse 5 kind of, kind of appears to be a throwaway verse. But in verse 5, we read these words. It says, Then Abraham said to his young men that were traveling with them, he said, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, what's really interesting here is that we, we learn something about Abraham's faith in God. Abraham fully expects that he and his son Isaac will walk up this mountain and will walk back down this mountain together, fully alive. He doesn't know how. He doesn't know when it's going to take place. He doesn't know what's exactly going to happen when they get to the top of that mountain. But Abraham fully expects to return with Isaac fully alive. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know how. He can't make sense of it. But he is stepping forward believing that God will provide and still fulfill his promise that he made to Abraham that through you all the nations will be blessed. Isaac is this promised child who through him all the nations will be blessed. So, so Abraham's got to think, there's no way you're going to utterly destroy Isaac. How is that possible? And so with every heart-wrenching step up this mountain, Abraham is also taking a step in faith, believing that whatever happens up there, both of us are walking down. I believe that because God is a God of promise. And he has declared that my son will be the father of a mighty nation and bring a blessing to the, to the world. So in this moment, as, God is, as, as Abraham is believing in God, we see that Abraham has a deep knowledge of who God is, but he also has an understanding of, of who he is himself. That Abraham, as he's been, if we've been journeying through Genesis, Abraham has grown in his understanding of who God is, but simultaneously he has an understanding of who he is. In fact, Tim Keller, in recounting this story in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says this. He says, if he, referring to Abraham, if he had not believed that he was in debt to a holy God, he would have been too angry to go, to go up the mountain with Isaac. But if he had not also believed that God was a God of grace, he would have been too crushed and hopeless to go. And so, so what we see in this story is that as, as Abraham is stepping forward with Isaac, knowing that what, that what God has asked him to do seems completely impossible, he also believes that God is going to do something to bring about restoration that would lead to Isaac walking down the mountain with Abraham. And this truth, this truth is made clear when we step back from the story of Abraham and Isaac and look at it in the context of the broader narrative of Scripture, we see that this is precisely what Abraham was thinking. In the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, uh, in chapter 11, it's referred to uh, as, as the hall of faith. Uh, it's the story of all of these faithful believers, those who have worshiped God and trusted him throughout the Old Testament. In Hebrews 11, starting in verse 17, we read these words that the author of Hebrews tells us about Abraham. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then verse 19 is the kicker. He, Abraham, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. There's a sense in which Abraham, as he is walking up this mountain with Isaac, not knowing what's going to happen up there, believes that God has the power to resurrect from the dead his son if it ever came to that. Which again, sounds ridiculous and crazy, but God, while Abraham believes that what God has asked him to do is utterly impossible, he also knows that God is able to do the impossible. 
Abraham is not acting out of blind faith or spiritual optimism, but rather he is, he is showing a faith that is risking everything he has in the present and everything, and, he, and he's entrusting everything that will come to him in the future, and he's rooting it in the faithfulness of God who has been faithful in the past. It doesn't make it easy, and he's not walking up kind of with this kind of jovial spirit, but Abraham is trying to trust that God is able to do the impossible. And I believe the author of Hebrews helps us see that. Abraham believes that God can bring back the dead to life. And, and this, is a, this is a helpful moment for us to kind of pause and to remember what the Bible is. Remember, the Bible is a collection of stories that, that together come together to tell one grand story. And I believe the story of Abraham and Isaac is one of the greatest narratives in all of the Bible that helps us put our Bible together, that helps us see the grand story. Because he, l- let me illustrate it this way. I, I want to show an image of a very common household item, uh, but zoomed in to a great degree. Okay, so I, I think I have our first image. Where is it? Here it is. Any ideas to what that is? Any guesses? Out loud, anybody? Oh, somebody guessed it. You guys are smarter than I thought you were. Uh, that's, that should be a compliment. Uh, yeah, okay, so, so what is it? It's a tape dispenser. It's a tape dispenser. Now, who, who could actually see what it was? Could you tell? There's a few people. Okay, all right, all right. All right, image two, image two. Any guesses? Oh, crayon. Man, you guys are too smart. Dang it. This is falling apart. Okay, uh, let's see what it is. Let's see what it is. It's a crayon. You're right. You're right. Okay, last one, last one. I'm going to get you with this one. Dang it. You guys are too smart. Okay, it is the stem of an apple. Okay, let's pretend you're all dumb. Okay, can we do that for a second? The, the, the point of this illustration, I used this on children for a long time ago. Now it's, anyway, the point is, when you zoom in on these images, if you weren't as smart as you are, you would realize, like, I can't make sense of what this is. It seems strange, unrecognizable, even, even weird or awkward. But when you step back, when you, when you see the whole image, you're like, oh, now I know what I was looking at. The thing that was once strange now makes total sense because I see the whole. In the same way, what I believe about this story is that if, if, if the story of Abraham and Isaac were the only story we had, the only image presented in God's picture book, if it were the only image we had, we would conclude, this is strange, this is weird, I can't make sense of this, what on earth is God doing? But when we step back and we see the image of this story of Abraham and Isaac in light of the grand picture of God's plan of salvation, we actually see it makes perfect sense in what God is doing. And this is made clear as the story unfolds. Look with me at verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 22. Back to Genesis. Verses 7 and 8, we read these words. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb. So this question, where is the lamb? It it seems to be just this kind of innocent inquiry by Isaac of the whereabouts of this object of sacrifice. And Abraham replies to Isaac, reminding him that God will provide. And Abraham doesn't fully know how in this moment, but he trusts and believes that God is a God who is faithful to provide. I don't believe Abraham's being coy here. 
I, I don't think he's trying to create a diversion to distract Abraham. I don't think he's trying to buy more time to get God to change his mind. I believe he is actually declaring something true about God. God will provide. I don't know how, and it seems impossible, but he will. And as he's doing that, he is trusting that God will provide in such a way that his promise that he made will be fulfilled, that through Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. Theologian Edmund Clowney, who just has a great name, you just have to quote him by his name itself, but, but he says this about this story. He says, Abraham was not telling a lie when he answered Isaac's question, which plunged like a knife into his heart. There was ambiguity in his answer, but ambiguity that revealed faith. But, but even with such bold faith that Abraham has in God as the one who is faithful, the one who will provide, Abraham still finds himself on top of a mountain, standing over his son, his only son, whom he loves, with a knife in his hand that is intended to end the life of his son and, and seemingly end the promise that God made that through him all the nations would be blessed. And so, no doubt, with many tears in his eyes, with great confusion in his mind, with, with heaviness in his heart, and yet, with bold faith in his God, Abraham follows through, attempts to follow through with what God asked him to do. But then we see in verses 11 and 12 these words. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, you're either thinking like, whew, that was a close one. Uh, or you're just like, How do you, what, what is this test? How do you make sense of this? Like, this is a wicked, cruel, strange test. Is this really the best idea God could come up with to test Abraham's faith? I thought you said this was going to get clearer, Reed, as we went on. So let me explain. Again, this story, I believe this story is not simply about God testing Abraham's faith. It's absolutely that. It opens up that way. But I believe this story is, is the, if, if, if not the greatest, it is one of the greatest zoomed-in stories of the zoomed-out story of God's plan of salvation. That without stepping back and seeing the whole picture, this story makes no sense whatsoever. Of course God didn't accept Isaac as a sacrifice. As great as a cost Isaac would be to Abraham, he still would not be a sufficient sacrifice because what were the sacrifices for? They were to atone for sin, to pay for the penalty of sin against a holy and righteous God. Therefore, no child as precious as they are could be a sufficient sacrifice to redeem and forgive sin. The test to sacrifice Isaac is a way to show us how great the cost of sin is and how great the cost of redemption is. That we need to see how great our sin is so that we might understand how great God's redemption towards us is in offering the greater sacrifice. This story reveals to us that what God demands is absolutely impossible, that God makes seemingly impossible demands of us. But when we look at the story in light of the grand story of Scripture, we also see that this story declares to us God provides for what He demands. 
God provides for what he demands. Yes, God makes seemingly impossible demands of us, but the good news of this story is that God provides for what he demands. God does make impossible demands. But in this story, I mean, what I want you to notice, the story doesn't end with Isaac simply being spared. It doesn't end, they go back home, and Sarah's like, hey, what were you boys up to this afternoon? Like, that's not how the story goes. But rather, there still needs to be a sacrifice. Did you notice that? It's not just a test of Abraham's faith. It's absolutely that. But there's still a need for sacrifice. Why? Because there's still a need for forgiveness. Because there's still the presence of sin. The climax of this story is actually found afterwards in verses 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What this story tells us is that as impossible as the demands are that God makes on us, the good news is that he provides for what he demands. And in this story, what does he provide? He provides a ram for the sacrifice. The ram was slaughtered so that Abraham would not have to slaughter Isaac. But what's really interesting is that remember Isaac's question. He didn't ask, where is the ram? He asked, Father, where is the lamb? And God provides in this moment. So Abraham does not have to sacrifice Isaac. He provides a ram. And if you've ever been to Deanna Rose or any petting zoo, you know rams and lambs are very different. And so God provides a ram in this moment. Why? Because the lamb was yet to come. In this moment, as God is providing the ram to be the substitute for Isaac, it is also telling us and paving the way, foreshadowing for, this, for us, the lamb that is yet to come. Because this zoomed-in story of Abraham and Isaac is actually the zoomed-out story of another father and another son who climbed upon another mountain that looked just like this. You see, just as God promised a son to be born to a waiting and hopeless couple, God would promise his own son to be born, to be sent to a hopeless and waiting people. Just as Abraham's son would experience testing in the wilderness beyond imagination, God's son, his only son whom he loved, would be sent into the wilderness to be tempted and tried alone. Just as Abraham offered up his son to be sacrificed, believing that God could raise him from the dead, God sent his son, his only son, whom he loved, to die in our place, to suffer the penalty of our sin, and to definitively and decisively raise him from the dead, showing his power over our greatest enemy. And what I love, man, if, if I could give a plug for a Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, I think captures this story so powerfully and beautifully. Sally Lloyd-Jones, when she tells this story of Abraham and Isaac, says this, Many years later, another son would climb another hill, carrying wood on his back. And like Isaac, he would trust his father and do what his father asked. He wouldn't struggle or run away. Who was he? God's son, his only son, the son he loved, the Lamb of God. What all this means is that the story here of Abraham and Isaac 
is helping us step back and see the grand story of what God is doing in our midst. What the story is telling us is that the cross on Mount Calvary, where the Son of God was sacrificed for you and for me, can be seen, so to speak, from the altar on top of Mount Moriah where Abraham's son was spared. On top of Mount Calvary at the cross where Jesus was sacrificed, the Son of God's sacrifice is showing us that we can see from Mount Moriah where the altar of Abraham's son, where he was spared, it shows us that we can see the cross, the good news of Jesus. For God did on Mount Calvary what Abraham did not have to do on Mount Moriah. Which is why, again, stepping back and looking at the whole narrative of Scripture, in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul tells us this beautiful truth in chapter 3, verse 8. And the Scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, which is vastly most of us here, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "In you shall all the nations be blessed. Abraham was, so to speak, able to see the cross and to see the promised lamb that wasn't provided on Mount Moriah, but would be provided ultimately, definitively, once and for all on Mount Calvary. That's what this story is pointing us to. That in the midst of a great trial, Abraham could still see the lamb and trust that God would be faithful to fulfill his promises. And so as we look at the story today, while Abraham was able from Mount Moriah in the midst of this great trial that none of us can imagine, he was able to see the Lamb of God. But the question for us is, can we? Can we see the Lamb of God from where we are? In the midst of our trials and through our tears, through our pain and heartache, are we able to see the Lamb of God from anywhere? Because what the story tells us is that true faith, true faith sees the Lamb from anywhere. The ability to endure any cost in following Jesus, the ability to entrust everything that we have and everything that will come our way to God's provision is rooted in our understanding, our joy, our delight, our deep trust in what God has provided us through Christ Jesus in being the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. True faith rests in and delights in the good news that Jesus lived for us and died for us, that he defeated death for us. It is this truth that enables us to, to daily and boldly declare the words that the Apostle Paul says in Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. True faith, true faith sees Jesus as the answer to the question that Isaac asked. Where is the lamb? How can things be made right? How can I be made whole? How is the promise to bless all the nations going to be fulfilled? For this question that Isaac asked was the question that God's people asked year after year after year. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? And then finally, that, that question is answered in the words of John the Baptist. Hundreds of years later, as he sees Jesus, the Son of God, he declares in John chapter 1, verse 29, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb whom Isaac was looking for. 
Jesus is the lamb whom God's people waited for. Jesus is the lamb whom John the Baptist prepared the world for. Jesus is the lamb of God who suffered and died for you and for me. And Jesus is the lamb who will reign forever. This story, as as hard as it is to make sense of at face value, this story only makes sense with Jesus. If we try to read it in isolation, we will miss out on the beauty and the fullness of what the story is telling us. Abraham and Isaac doesn't make sense without Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sin of the world. True faith sees the Lamb from anywhere, and it lives in light of the truth that God provides for what he demands. But the question for all of us is, friends, can we see the lamb from where we are? Can we declare with John, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Let's take a moment to pray together. Father in heaven, I do boldly ask that in this time, you would help us to see the the fullness and the beauty the power and the mystery of the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we see, as Abraham did, Lord, may we see and understand the depth of our sin, the cost that it is to our lives, to those around us. And Lord, through that, may we see the beauty, the rich blessing of of the cost that Christ endured for us. Lord, I pray that in this time, you would, where we sit, in the midst of our heartache and pain, our fears and doubts, our regrets in all of it, Lord, may we be able to see the lamb from where we are and to declare boldly that he is the one who takes away our sin and the sin of the world. Lord, would you remove the barriers and blinders that keep us from seeing our sin and from seeing Jesus, the one who endured our sin so that we might be made whole through him. Lord Jesus, in this time, make yourself known to us in new and fresh ways that we might live in light of your goodness and grace finding wholeness that you have come to provide for us that only you provide. Lord, may we see the lamb from where we are. We pray this in the name of the lamb, in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. 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 Where is the lamb? It seems like a simple question, but that question is so important for us to answer. Have you come to see and behold Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And if you come to see him in such a way that you're able to see him from anywhere and everywhere, that as we prepare to even leave this place as the church gathered to being the church scattered, would we be a people who are able to behold the Lamb of God in every place, in every relationship, every space that God sends us into, living in light of the truth that what God demands is impossible, but he, thanks be to God, provides what he demands. And and, and if you have not come to behold the Lamb of God, I invite you to do so. I want to be up here. I'm going to stand here at the end of the service. I'll be here till Tuesday, I think. And if you would like to come and, and just, if you want to explore what it means to behold the Lamb of God, to know Jesus and to live in light of his truth, I invite you to come. Find me, find someone on staff, someone you came with, to live in light of this truth. Well, friends, as we do, prepare to leave this place. Uh, I want to share our benediction, our good word for the road from Hebrews chapter 13. May this be a truth that forms us and shapes us as God's people as we leave into the places God has called us. So hear these words. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good 
that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great week.